0: Chapter 15, we're going to finally finish that long chapter. wasn't that long, but we made it long. <laughs> Looking at verses 26 and 27, and then we're also going to get into chapter 16. It's a shame chapter 16 has that division there. You know, those aren't God-inspired chapter divisions, because really the Lord just keeps flowing. So um, our passage for today is going to go through 16, verse 7. The lesson is entitled what? Uh, the Ministries of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, Part 1. And in your books, on what is the lesson number? <laughs> Lost that. 157. One fifty-seven. If you want to try to follow along with me, good luck. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to give you new information today, so you might want to have a little notepad to take some things. I'll try to remind you that if this is not in the book, you might want to make some notes about it. But I always encourage you to listen to the lesson and then go home and also read your your books because that way you get sometimes double whammy. You get... You know, more information than I have time to share with you in our one hour here this morning. All right, let's um, go to Lord in prayer. If you'd bow with me. <clears throat> Father God, we pray this morning that you, the God of hope, would fill us with all joy and peace in believing that we may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that you would uh, make our time here together one that is marked by his ministry, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would cleanse us of all sin, that you would wash us of all our uncleanness. And may this atmosphere here this morning be set apart for the usage of your spirit. May nothing impede his having a freedom and that our hearts, Lord, would be turned entirely toward you. May each of us individually know the joy of sensing in ourselves that we have been the object of your attention this morning, that your Spirit has spoken to us, that you have suited and fit your word to our individual situations in life and our needs. And may we be gladdened and refreshed today because of the words of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As the Lord Jesus and his men were winding their way where? Where are they going? Right, garden to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he knew that Judas would find them in just a few short hours. He continues to instruct his men on some very vital truths that they would need to know for their future ministry without his physical presence. In the next section now of his farewell discourse, which is actually from 1526 all the way to 1615, that's the next section, um, he spoke additional words to his men about the Holy Spirit. And I say additional words because if you remember back in chapter 14, while they were all still in the upper room, as the Lord was comforting his men over this their despair, you know, he had told them he was leaving and they were very, very distraught about his departure. What had he done? Well, he had given them ten comforting promises. And one of those promises was that he would send them allos paracletos, meaning another paraclete. And he called that one the, the comforter, another one just like him who would abide with them how long? forever and even, he went on to tell them, even for the first time in history, indwell them. And now he returns to the subject matter of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, reminding them of his coming, which is the one promise repeated the most in the farewell discourse. The one promise that he repeats more than any other promise is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that um, and he gives them additional information about the ministry of the Spirit when he will come. And we're going to be covering this section, as I told you, in, I think I told you, in two parts. It's just too much information to get it all in one. So today we're just going to look at verses fifteen twenty six to sixteen seven. And we're just going to look at the Lord, the Spirit's ministry of comforting. Next time, in two weeks, when you come back, we'll look at the, the ministry, the Spirit's ministry of reproving and of teaching. And you can see that by your outline, a real simple three-part outline. And by the way, this is the lengthiest passage in the Bible on the subject of the coming and worldwide ministries of the Holy Spirit. And I think that that fact alone makes it very distinctive and makes it very important and makes it very much worth our time Spent in it. So let's begin by reading today's verses regarding the comforting ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And so, if you'll look with me at starting at verse uh, 26 of chapter 15, right after the Lord had talked about the fact that the world would hate them because it hated Him without a cause, He says in verse 26 But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended or stumbled. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. That's the end of our reading for today. Now, the connection... Between Christ's warning about the hatred and the opposition of the world, which believers would soon begin to encounter after his departure back to heaven... And his, the connection between his talk about hatred and then his repeated mentioning of the coming of the Holy Spirit is really apparent. It looks like he jumps from one su- subject to the other. But when we think it through, the connection is really obvious. One of the Holy Spirit's special ministries to the Lord's followers is his work as their divine comforter, which is how the Lord addressed him. Uh, you know, the Holy Spirit has many names. We'll talk about those in a minute. But he, he addressed the Holy Spirit as comforter in chapter 14, which makes sense because chapter 14 of John's gospel is the comfort chapter of the Bible, isn't it? So you referred to the Holy Spirit as comforter in chapter 14. Here he refers to him again as comforter in chapter 15. And then if you look down at chapter uh, verse six, uh, 7 of 16, we find that he calls him comforter in chapter 16. Actually, four times in the farewell discourse, the Lord Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit as the Comforter. Twice he calls him the Spirit of Truth. So obviously, Jesus is emphasizing the Spirit's comforting ministry. You see, although there would be a continual ongoing storm of persecution against them, because, simply because of their identity with Jesus and because they don't really know God, um, he reminds his friends that they're not going to be a left, left alone in their spiritual warfare. They're his friends, so he's going to tell them the truth, right? Yes, you're going to be hated by the world. The world is going to hate you and oppose you just because of your new nature in me and because they don't know God, but I am not going to leave you alone in this warfare. Aren't you glad for that truth? I'd hate to be trying to, to battle things a spiritual warfare all alone without the paraclete. The paraclete literally means in Greek, you know, parakletos means one who comes alongside of. We even have a better situation than that in this church age, don't we? Not only did he come alongside of us, but he actually indwells us. First time ever uh, in all history. And so he's telling them that um, another divine person exactly like himself, which is what alos, parakletos means, just like him, would be their comforting advocate. He would be present with them always to assist them, to strengthen them, to embolden them, particularly in their moments of greatest need, which would be? At times when we're being opposed and hated and reviled and persecuted. And as for the apostles, even put to death. And many Christians through the ages when they're martyred for their faith. Ultimately, there would be victory for them through the Holy Spirit, right? Even if they take our bodies, we are the victors, aren't we? Our victory is in Christ. He's already won the battle. We're overcomers in Christ. So the Spirit is both the believer's comforter and the believer's spirit of truth, through times of persecution. for we're being persecuted and we don't really know what to say, who speaks for us, helps us out? The spirit of truth. So, beginning with John 15, verses 26 and 27, if you'll go back and look at those two verses, the Lord made a transition from explaining to his men the reasons for the world's hatred of him and of them, he uh, makes that transition from that subject to the issue of their responsibility to continue to testify as witnesses for him in spite of the fact that they would be hated and misunderstood and persecuted unjustly without a cause. The Lord, in, in saying what he does to them in verse 26 and 27, is actually also predicting the fact that after his departure, there still would be Testimony of Him. It wouldn't just end. They wouldn't just go back to fishing. And that would be the end of that. There would continue to be a testimony of Jesus Christ in this world. He confirms to His men their vocation as His witnesses. And you know, the Greek word for witnesses is actually the word that we get our English word martyr. It would be His martyrs. And if you're willing to be a witness, you also need to be willing to be a martyr. And he predicts with clearness that they shall bear testimony of him in the future. However, they won't have to do it by themselves. Who is going to conduct the cause for them and with them? The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, even the Spirit of Truth. And how would the Spirit of Truth, the Comforter, give testimony to the world of Christ? He would do it through the apostles and those they were those especially you know who would start it all because they had been with Jesus from the beginning so they would start it and then of course it would carry on down through the church age through all of the Lord's future disciples so the Lord Jesus places the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the apostles and future believers how does he place those two things he places them really back to back so he says a witness is going to be through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, and the comforter. And it's going to be through you guys. Ye also, he says, shall bear witness. Ye also, meaning also with the Spirit. So he places them back to back. Why? Because really, the two ministries are one. They're one. Remember what he said, his last words to his men as he's ascending up into heaven in the book of Acts? He says, ye shall receive Power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you and ye shall be my witnesses. What he's saying there is you men will be my witnesses, but the witness that you will have will be the witness of the Spirit of God. You will give the world my words that you've heard because you've been with me from the beginning. And as you do, As you open your mouths and give the world the words about me, the Spirit himself will be testifying of me. And he will be convincing men and convicting men of me as you speak. So the witness, you see, and that's how it works still today, isn't it? So the witness of the Spirit and the believer is one. And this this way, the way this works, was really demonstrated on the very day... That the Holy Spirit came the day of Pentecost, exactly, Uh, to perform his new ministries. What do we read about on the day of Pentecost? Well, we read that the Holy Spirit immediately set to work through the one I call the mouth, the mouth member of the apostolate. And you all know who that was? Peter. Peter, who was known for putting his foot in his mouth. But he was definitely wasn't he? You know, we're all members of the body. He was the mouth <laughs> in that particular little body. Suddenly, Peter, who never got anything right, <laughs> suddenly he was mightily empowered to preach. And his spirit-empowered message uh, uh, about the word of the from the word of God about the son of God did what? Convicted 3,000 people of their need to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's, that was amazing coming from Peter. Now, Peter couldn't have done that on his own, could he? It was his mouth and the Spirit in him empowering him. And then all throughout the book of Acts, we repeatedly learn how the original followers of the Lord Jesus, first the apostles and then others, performed their responsibility as witnesses of Christ to a very hostile world. And they did it always through the power of the work of the Holy Spirit within them. Without him, what would they have been capable of doing? Remember that big, fat zero that we talked about? Without the Spirit, they would have been able to do absolutely nothing. But with him, with the Spirit, they not only laid a firm foundation for the church, but they literally turned the world upside down, the known world at that time. The world has never been the same since the day of Pentecost, and I'm so glad for that. The world was really a dark place before Christ. I don't know if you realize that. We'll get more into that later, but it's, it's amazing. Well, anyway, notice how systematically planned the Lord's instructional teaching in this last discourse that he gave to his men is. I don't know if you've noticed that, but he's, he, he does everything so precise and so pre-planned. You know, he's not just speaking randomly about subjects that come into his mind. He uh, is instructing his men on four very important relationships, actually new kinds of relationships that they're going to have after his departure. He wasn't just randomly speaking of things. Everything he said was with precision, and it was with purpose. First of all, remember how he had spoken about the new relationship that they would have with God? For the first time, believe people would be able to call God their... Father, no one, no Jew would would ever even have considered calling God their father. That was considered blasphemous. But we not only have that privilege as his children to call him father, but we can even go a step further and call him daddy, Abba, daddy. Like we can crawl up on his lap and, and call him daddy. It's amazing. New relationship with God the Father. And then the Lord talked about the new relationship that they would have with Him. It would be new because He would no longer physically be present with them. And yet, they were still able to abide closely with Him, have even a more intimate union with Him, like branches to a vine, or like friends to as inner circle friends to a king. And then he talked about another new relationship that was badly needed. They were to, remember the new commandment he gave them? They were to love one another. Ooh, they'd had a little trouble in that area, hadn't they? All the bickering and fighting over who's going to get the seats of honor in the kingdom. They were to love one another with what kind of love? With the kind of love he loved them with. Sacrificial, unconditional love. Love. And then the fourth relationship he instructed them about was one that they would have with the world. Whether they liked it or not, they were going to have a new relationship with the world, weren't they? The world was going to hate them because they were not of the world. If the world if they were of the world, the world loves its own, but they're not of the world. They have a new citizenship and they're in Christ that they have a new being new creatures and so they'd have a new relationship with the world it would hate them and they were to know about it and they were to anticipate it so that they wouldn't be shocked when it hit them and they wouldn't be overwhelmed by it and as we just discussed they were to patiently bear its persecution and in the spirit's power they were to continue in spite of the hatred They were to continue to be witnesses testifying in the power of the Spirit of Christ in this world, which is what we are mandated to do to this very day some 2,000 years later. Well, I also want you to take fact, if you go back to, this is easy because one is 1426 and one is 1526. Look, compare 1426 in John's Gospel with 1526. It just turned out to be that way. But uh, back in chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus had said that it was the Father who would send the Holy Spirit. Let me read that verse. He says in 1426, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. So who sends the Holy Spirit? Father. Okay, now look at 1526. 1526 says that he, Christ, will send the Holy Spirit. As he says in 1526, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father. Now, is that a contradiction in the Scripture that John 1426 says the Father will send him, and 1526 Jesus says I will send him? Is that a contradiction? Do we have a problem here? Oh, of course not. Absolutely not. It merely means that the third person of the triune Godhead proceeds from both God the Father and God the Son piece of cake. That's not hard to understand. I don't know why some people, critics, get all bent out of shape about something like that. It's just ridiculous. This is known, this is an answer to one of your homework questions, so get ready. This double procession of the Holy Spirit from God the Father and God the Son is known by theologians as the double procession of the Holy Spirit. Not that that makes a difference, but that's what it's known as, the double procession of the Holy Spirit. It's just one more truth that indicates to us the unity of the triune Godhead. That's all. Well, another interesting difference that we find in these same two verses, 1426 and 1526, is with the words, proceedeth and sinned. In John fourteen twenty six, go back to that one. Jesus said, the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. Do we have a bird in here? That's kind of, it's like in, you know, Walmart. I think he's up in one of those lights. <laughs> well, that's pretty background music, isn't it? I hope he doesn't fly at me that though. I'm a little scared of birth. Anyway, 1426. Let's get our focus back. 1426. <laughs> he says that the spirit will. <clears throat> um, uh, the Holy Ghost whom the father will send. Then 1526. He says the spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the father. Oh, my. Now, you wouldn't think that that is a big deal, would you? Would you think it's a big deal that it says the father would send him and then another verse says he'll proceed from the father? I don't find any problem with that at all. But do you know that back in the 15th century, this is what divided the Eastern Orthodox Church from the Roman Catholic Church? I don't get it. But anyway, that was one of the main things that they got divided over. And don't ask me why, because I don't understand. <laughs> but, and I don't care to. All, really, when it says that he proceeds from the Father, that demonstrates that not only did the Father send him, and Christ sent him, but guess what? He came of his own volition. The Spirit wasn't sent begrudgingly. Oh, I don't really want to go. Tough beans, you have to go. He proceedeth from that means he did it voluntarily. He willingly proceeded of his own volition to do his work here on earth. Now, what? Here's another answer to one of your homework questions. Listen up. What is the Holy Spirit's supreme mission here on Earth during this age? Mm-hmm. Well, he tells the Lord. Tells us, look. Look, he says in verse 26, he shall testify of me. Now, don't you tell me my homework questions are hard. That's not hard. <laughs> At least this one isn't. Uh, his supreme mission is that he will testify to the world of Christ's person and of Christ's saving power. He testifies of Christ. And he would bear witness of the Son in and through the Son's disciples. That's to be his supplementary ministry. But his supreme work is to testify of Christ. He's not here to glorify himself. He's here to glorify Christ. And he would testify through the Lord's disciples using that which they had already seen in the Son and using that which they had already heard from the Son. You know, the Holy Spirit does not minister in a vacuum. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't somehow, some people have this idea that he just mysteriously floats through the world as kind of a ghost, you know, like Casper, just in a ghostly manner seeking to win the lost. Didn't Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, didn't Jesus take on a body in order to accomplish his work of redemption on earth? Didn't he? Take on the form of a human. And likewise, you know what? The Spirit of God also needs a body to carry on His mission on earth. What body does the Holy Spirit use? He uses your bodies. If you're truly born again, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He uses my body. And corporately together, He uses what body? The church. The church is the body of Christ. The bodies of believers in this age are his temple, the Spirit's temple, and the Spirit's tool to carry out his work of glorifying Christ and witnessing to a lost and dying world. Now, this is I know I've asked you this question before, but this is a reminder. This is a good question to go home and ask your friends or ask your children who are old enough to understand or your husbands, you know, get them really thinking. Ask them, what do Bethlehem and Pentecost have in common? What do Bethlehem and Pentecost have in common? The answer is that at Bethlehem, God the Father had prepared a body for His Son to work through. And at Pentecost, God the Father prepared a body for His Spirit to work through. Holy Spirit doesn't just float around, He works in a body just like Jesus on earth worked in a body. And that, good question. You think you can stump somebody with that question? I think you can. Actually, I don't remember if I um, if I have told you this previously, but there are fourteen names in the Scripture for the Holy Spirit, and in your books I say there's thirteen names. Boo boo! I knew when I wrote thirteen, it wasn't a very good number. I thought this isn't right. this doesn't seem right, Lord. You know what name I forgot to include? Holy Spirit. Duh. <laughs> Didn't count that one. So it makes sense that there's 14 names, right? We know how much God likes the number 7, so 2 times 7 is 14. 14 names or titles for the Holy Spirit. And just in listing these names, you really discover a lot about him. He is a person. He is not a force. He is not an it. He is a he. And when we listen to his names, we really learn a lot about his attributes and his role in in the Trinity. So I'm just going to read to you his names, okay? Just listen to these. And they are in your book so you don't have to write them down. Other than the Holy Spirit, add that one. <laughs> All right. He's called the Holy Spirit. King James calls him the Holy Ghost. He is the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ. He's called. He's also called the eternal spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit of grace, spirit of glory. He's called the spirit of life and the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The comforter, the spirit of promise, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of holiness, and the spirit of faith. Fourteen titles. Now, if I take out those words spirit of, just listen to these words. God, Christ, eternal, Truth, grace, glory, life, wisdom, revelation, comfort, promise, adoption, holiness, and faith. What do you learn about the Holy Spirit? He's God, isn't he? He's God, just same attributes and character as God the Father and God the Son. And where does he dwell right now? Where does this mighty one dwell? Isn't that amazing? Within us, within us. So what's our excuse for not turning this world upside down like the apostles did? Mm. Also, I want you to notice the words of 20, verse 27 of chapter 15, where Jesus said, Ye also shall bear witness. Ye also, he's speaking to his men. And the verb there is given in the present tense, which means he's saying, ye shall also keep on bearing witness of me. And also that verb in the Greek can be understood as an imperative, which means as a command. So he's saying, ye shall keep on bearing witness of me and ye shall do it. Ye shall, command, keep on bearing witness of me. He's not only predicting that they will, but he's giving it as a command. And the reason for this factual and yet commanded continual witness is then given. Look at the rest of the verse. It is because ye have been with me from the beginning. The eleven were in a very unique place position. Why do you think the Lord spent so much time with these guys? They had a big assignment ahead of them. They had been there with Christ from the beginning of his public ministry. So they had seen virtually all of his miracles. They had heard all of his words. And so he was putting a charge in them that would carry them through the atmosphere of hostility that they were soon going to encounter. He was actually saying to them, you must bear witness. And he's saying to them, and you will bear witness. And did they? Oh, yes. Very, very faithfully. To the end of each of their lives, they did bear witness. And 10 of the 11 were martyred. And John certainly faced a lot of persecution. And now you and I, you know, some 20 centuries later, you and I need to think about this. If he commanded them to bear witness because of their special privileges, oh, what does that say to us today? We have more special privileges, believe it or not, than they did. We have the entire Bible. They didn't. They hadn't written it yet. I mean, even by the time some, well, James, James was martyred before he had anything from the New Testament to read. Some of the others might have been able to read one or two of the other guy's letters. I don't know, but um, none of them had the complete Bible like we do. And none of them had the privilege of 2,000 years of church history where they could see the Lord's words lived out. And they could see the added testimony of thousands upon thousands of Christians who have gone before us, right? We learn a lot from the Christians who have gone before us and particularly those who have been persecuted and have stood firm in the face of such hostility. So are we not also in a very special, unique position? And I would add to that having the privilege to live in this country with all the access we have to God's Word and extra-biblical materials and airwaves where the truth is preached. I mean, we have no excuse... For not bearing witness to our... And if we won't bear witness, who will? He didn't have a plan B, you know. And remember who's in you? God. God, the Holy Spirit. Isn't that convicting? Who convicts me? We should know on the authority of the Word of God that we have the Godhead behind us 100%. When we walk into an antagonistic environment and live out the life of Christ or declare the teachings of Christ that are so objectionable to the opinion, you know, the the public opinion polls around us today. We should know the Godhead is behind us. Why is the Lord telling his men and telling you and I these things, as he says over and over again, these things, these things? Why is he telling us these things? Well, his answer is given in, in John 16.1. His reason for informing us of the world's hatred is so that when it happens, we won't what stumble. We won't be offended. Offended. We could interpret it as being stumbled, or it really comes from the Greek word for scandalized. We won't be scandalized. We won't. It also has in the meaning um, trapped. That we won't be trapped into um, what happens if we're trapped we might trap our mouths shut up our mouths you know when we when we come into a, a situation where people respond negatively to our christian witness you know, catches us off guard. I was caught off guard. First time I, you know, right after I got saved, I ran home to my parents and remember they were sitting at the kitchen table and I just blurted out, I was born again and Jesus was in my heart and I thought they'd be so happy. (laughs) Whoa. Not so. Not happy at all. And, you know, the, the reaction in the flesh is for us to stumble, right? And... And, and, and be trapped and maybe be quiet, maybe become a secret Christian and tell nobody. I don't like that kind of reaction. You know, when people start whispering about us behind our backs or are or, or thinking of us as really peculiar people <laughs> or weirdos or fanatics, you know. It's so, all right to be a fanatic in every, any other area of life, right? But not a fanatic for the God of the universe, but, you know, he tells us ahead of time because he doesn't want us to react like that. He wants us to be prepared and not stumble. Do you know what was the greatest danger after uh, during the times of great persecution under, for example, the Roman Caesars or during the time, for example, of the inquisitions of medieval days? You've heard of the Spanish I- Inquisition when... Thousands of of believers were killed. Or do you know what the greatest danger was during the time of the Great Reformation? It wasn't the sharp teeth of the lions. It wasn't the torture chambers. And it wasn't the flame beneath the stake. The greatest danger was of turning one's back on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why the Lord would say, you know, don't fear them who can kill the body, but fear him who can deliver both body and soul from destruction where? In hell. When we, you know, the worst they can do to us, as I said before, is kill our body, but that's actually good, isn't it? Because instantly (laughs) we'll be victorious, we'll be in the presence of the Lord. When we testify of Christ and when we cross people's little cherished traditions and we experience their unjustified hostility, we do have a tendency to draw back. Have you ever questioned somebody based on the Word of God? You know, why do you do this in your church? What's it, you know, no foundation for it in the Scripture. I'm going to make somebody get mad at me, but why do you um, baptize babies? Just to get them wet? You know, baptism is to be after someone is truly saved. To show their identity with Christ, so why do you do that? It's not in the Bible, nowhere. Uh, or why do you um, participate in transubstantiation? If you don't know what that is, I don't have time to explain it. Or what else could I say, Terry? Um, there's all kinds of traditions. You say something, and why do you call your priest father? Hmm. Doesn't the Bible says not to call anyone father except God? things like that you cross them and uh whoo, all of a sudden i remember saying to my sister who married a mormon and i said you know he's not really a christian she threw a shoe at me that literally went through our bathroom door <laughs> she's a little thing but boy she got an arm on her <laughs> my sister's only four eleven. can you believe that and i'm like i used to be 5 8 i don't know what i am and i'm shrinking But people don't like to hear things, the truth. But anyway, our tendency is to draw back, and that's why the Lord spoke ahead of time about the extremities that believers would face. First, he said, now this doesn't mean much much to us, but remember, the first Christians were almost all Jewish. So first of all, he said, they're going to put you out of the synagogues. To me, I say, a big deal. I've never been in one anyway. (laughs) kick me out i don't care <laughs> but comparably to us it'd be like being kicked out of our churches and for example you know a family would go to the same synagogue for years and years and years your g- parents and grandparents and great grandparents would probably go to the same synagogue they didn't have a synagogue on every corner like we do in Sanford <laughs> there'd be one in the town and to be kicked out of it it would be like, I, you know, if I've gone to my church, well, I've only gone to my church 15 years, but what if I had gone there my whole life, my parents had gone there, my great grand, you know, all well, my whole generation all the way back had gone to that church and suddenly they expel me. That affects you. I mean, that. but to the Jew, it really affected them because their whole social life was built around the synagogue. In fact, if you were de-synagogued, you could not be employed. They, you were not allowed to be employed. Number three, you could not buy anything. You were not allowed to buy, and you couldn't sell. You had to become a total beggar and just hope somebody would drop something into your lap, you know, an alm. You could not have your children educated. So, you see, to be excommunicated to a Jew was a big thing, wasn't it? It was horrible. First, he says, you're going to be de And you know, um, we really find in the book of Acts that this is exactly what happened. These guys were desynagogued. That's a word I made up. (laughs) And that's why, you know, Gentile Christians were sending money to the Jewish Christians. You know why? Why were the Gentiles taking up love offerings and sending them to the Jewish Christians? Because the Jewish Christians were all poor, they had lost their employment. And unless a Gentile hired them, and I would think that probably happened, probably some of the Gentiles hired the Jewish uh, Christians. But we find this actually happening. By, by the time of John, by the time John, not by the time of John, but by the time John wrote this gospel account, do you know that, and this was, um, this was okayed, this was approved of by the Sanhedrin Council, that all the synagogues, put into their time of worship, in their services, a prayer. Now, their services were full of prayers. They read all their prayers, and half of the service was probably read prayers. But they added this new prayer. And I could just picture us having a prayer like this in our church services, but here's what it was. Now, remember, this is before the Christians were called Christians. Originally, you know what they were called? They weren't called Christians until... Was it Antioch, right? That they were first called Christians? Christ followers, little Christ, little Christ. But before that, they were called Nazarenes because they followed the Nazarene Jesus. So here's the prayer that they added to their synagogue services. And everyone had to pray this prayer together. Let all Nazarenes and heretics perish as in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of life and not be enrolled with the righteous. Oh, nice prayer can't you see that in our services let all the ungodly be struck with lightning and fried (laughs) like James and John they added that prayer why because if a Christian Jew slipped into the synagogue service they would spot him in a minute because he would not pray that prayer would he And they, I'm sure their eyes were open while they're praying. Let's see who doesn't say, isn't that awful? So not only did the Lord tell an advancement of this excommunication, but then at the end of verse two, he says that the time would come that whoever would kill them, the apostles and other believers, they would think that they were doing God a service. And that's how they would justify their hatred and their murder in their own minds. and, Outstanding example of this we have in who? Everybody's thinking of Saul. Saul of Tarsus, that rabid Pharisee who, you know, killed. He actually murdered many Christians, went into their homes and dragged them out, men and women, and took them to prison and was consenting to their deaths and trying to get them to blaspheme and, you know, and deny Christ. Uh, and he later admitted this is in acts 23 one he admitted that he thought within himself when he was busily persecuting the Christians that he ought to do these things. He thought he said that he did all those things in good conscience. He was not excusing what he did. he rather he was explaining to his readers that although he was wrong, He did it in good conscience because he thought it was required of him by God to put out all these followers of a false Messiah. So what what he did, he did in good conscience. But he admitted that he really did not know God the way he really is. He thought he did, didn't he? Thought he was working for God and doing a good thing. But later, after his salvation, he admitted he didn't really know God at all the, true, the way he truly is. And the result is that he did put Christians, many Christians, to death. He was a bad dude before his salvation. I don't know if you realize the change in that man. Change in Peter? Change in Paul, too. Christians of every decade have encountered religious people just like Saul. Christians of every century have lived in the midst of a world full of religion and full of religionists. Isn't that really the problem we have in the world today? Centered on what? Religion. Everything that the turmoil going on in the Middle East, religion, religion everywhere. Actually, the world even looks upon us as religionists, doesn't it? They, w- they would call us fanatic religionists. Truth is, we're not religionists at all. We are ambassadors for the living Lord. We are ambassadors who have been left on earth. We could have been taken the moment of our salvation, but we've been left here to deliver the message of eternal hope and life to an otherwise hopeless and dying earth. And in this fact alone... As we've discussed previously, the believer has a tremendous problem. Our task is a problem. Our commission is a problem. You know why? Because truth is narrow. We've talked about this before. Truth is very narrow. I asked the ladies yesterday, I said, for example, two plus two is what? And one of the ladies in the front row said two. I said, two plus two is what? And she said two. And then we all just burst out laughing. I said, well, I guess truth isn't as narrow as I thought it was. <laughs> she couldn't believe she said that. What is two plus two? Four. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I won't tell you who it was either. But uh, tr- truth is narrow. There's only one answer to mathematical problems, okay? And in, in, uh, in other realms of life, too. There's, there's only one God, and He has only one Son whom he loves with a love that we can't even begin to comprehend. To demonstrate that love, God set up his son as the only way to approach him, to approach himself. You see, all men must approach God in the name of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved his son. He made his son that name that is above every name. He's the only way to approach God. And, of course, the world, oh, that is so narrow, isn't it, to the world. It is so intolerant, too dogmatic. And so they reject his son, and they establish all their own ways to get to God. And the end result is a world full of religions and religionists, all these different approaches to God. So the Lord, in this passage, warned that it would be the religionists of the world who would be the primary persecutors of his people. And isn't that, what, that the way it's been? It's not so much that down through the centuries it was the pagans. It was those who were the religionists. Look at the Inquisition. Look at the Great Reformation who persecuted the Christians. As time went on, he says, excommunication would turn to execution. And the two types of, of persecution that he gives there are interesting because one has to do with the torture of the mind. Excommunication, as I told you, for a Jew, that's a torture of the mind to be cut off from your family and friends and life, social life of your community. Isn't it a torture of your mind? Have been basically excommunicated from your families? It is. I, I can speak personally. It's a terrible torture of the mind. So one is a torture of the mind and the, the other is a torture of the body. Excommunication, mind, death. And he says, they will kill you. That's a tort, tort, the ultimate torture of the body. Both, both of those would be carried out by those who would think that they were purifying and cleansing, first of all, the synagogues like Saul did, and then later on, the church. They would think they were cl- cleansing the church of false teaching. Do you know who it was who called Martin Luther an apostle of the devil? Who called him that? A Buddhist? A Hindu? A Muslim? No. It was the religionists of of those days who called themselves the true church. They said that Luther's preaching regarding justification, salvation, by faith, and by faith alone, no works, that that was against God. Is it in the Bible? Oh, yeah, it's definitely in the Bible. They said it was against God. So they persecuted him. Luther wrote these words. He said, quote, Persecutors always claim to be the true church, the people of God. But the claim doesn't make it so. He says there is an old German proverb that says, Not all who carry long knives are iron chefs. No, he didn't say that. I made that up (laughs) Iron chefs didn't know they had those No, he said this He says there's an old German proverb that says Not all who carry long knives are cooks Isn't that true? Not all who persecute true Christians Are the true church The true clergy of the Lord Jesus Christ But how can we know Who's right and who's wrong? How can we know the difference between um, The persecutor and the persecutee Which one is right? Right, exactly. This is how we know the difference. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible, it, you know, not, not the doctrines, not the creeds, not the traditions of men. The Bible is our final authority for faith and practice. You know what they called that in the Reformation? In Latin, sola scriptura, only the Bible. If it doesn't agree with the Bible, it's not of God. That's how you tell the difference, okay? But as soon as you open your mouth about some religion's contradiction of the Scripture, you become a thorn in the side of the existing religious climate and viewpoint. And guess what? You will be reviled You will be mocked, you will be scorned, you will be shunned, you will be persecuted in some form. You may be in a church like that now, where you're speaking out against things that you know are not scriptural. Are you suffering some persecution for it? You probably are, I would imagine. You know, when we accept the Lord's teaching... Which we all should do. The real surprise for us should not be the persecution. The real surprise for us should be that more of us aren't being persecuted. That should be the real surprise. I was in a couple of weeks ago where I think I told you my husband had a colonoscopy and it was in Asheboro. And I went with I, well, I didn't go with him, but I had to go pick him up afterwards because he scheduled it during Bible study, so I couldn't be with him. <laughs> But I went after Bible study and picked him up And on our way back we went through downtown Ashboro. And this man, and he wasn't a weird looking man He was a clean cut man, looked like he almost could have been a pastor He was standing on the busiest corner in downtown Ashboro, And he had this big giant cross he had made And in the middle of it he just said Jesus, that's all And he was he was just standing there holding that cross And as people went by he pointed to it and do you think that man was being persecuted? I could see the persecution in cars going by laughing at him. he went by when we went by he pointed and I went like this to him, you know, right on. Uh, I don't know, you know, maybe I should do that at my time off. On my day off, Terry, you see me at- Downtown Aberdeen staying <laughs> I'm not sure that, you know, maybe we could w- redeem our time more wisely than that. I don't know. I'm not going to judge a man. I just give him credit for doing that. That's wonderful that he did that, but I guarantee you he was encountering some persecution. Well, anyway, the Lord reiterates what he said back in John 15, 21. The reason for the per- persecution by the religious crowd is that they have not known the Father, nor me. If these people really and genuinely knew God, as Saul later admitted... Um, The proof would be that they would love Christ if they really knew God they would love Christ and they would love his followers Well in verse 4 the Lord told his men that he had warned them of these things uh, So that they would remember he had predicted them And their faith would be strengthened he did know what he was talking about. He knew the future. And also, he didn't tell them so as to discourage them, but to fortify them for what lay ahead. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. And then the teaching that he begins in verse 5 is given an answer to two deficiencies that Jesus sees in his disciples. The first deficiency is their failure to have asked where he was going. And he says, let's read it. He says, but now I go my way to him that sent me and none of you asketh me whither goest thou. Now, immediately, some of you might think about Peter. You say, well, that's not true. Peter asked you, Lord, back in 1336, Lord, whither, whither goest thou? But that was more of a protest. That was more like a childish protest saying, you know, where are you going? I want to go with you. Have you ever had your kids do that? That's kind of like what Peter was doing. He None of them really asked the Lord um, with any genuine interest in where he was going. Where are you going, Lord? What is that going to mean for you? Oh, you must be so happy that you're going to go back to your father and share the glory you had with him before them. You know, none of them are seriously inquiring where he's going. But he wanted them to understand where he was going and all that it meant. He was really disappointed that they didn't. Uh, inquire about the subject that he had been talking about so much, his own departure and all the ramifications of it. Instead of being happy for him, instead of being concerned for him, instead of being um, curious about his future, all they could do was what? Have a big pity party all they could do was sorrow for themselves woe is me what are we going to do without him he says but because I have said these things unto you sorrow hath filled your hearts we could call it selfish sorrow because it was all centered on themselves not on him so that was their first deficiency and it ties in with the second deficiency he found in them and that was their failure to grasp the advantage of his departure And that's why he says in verse 7, it is expedient to you that I go away. In other words, it's very, very advantageous for you guys that I go away. I wonder how many of us really understand how advantageous it has been for us that Jesus went away. And that's why he goes ahead and gives his fullest teaching on the Holy Spirit and his ministry um, in, in this passage. I know we're not going to get there until next time, but if you look real quickly at verses 8 and verse 13, we find the Lord used the same terminology when he said twice, and when he is come. He's speaking about who? The Spirit. When the Spirit is come. And then he's proceeded to speak of things that would take place when the Spirit did come. And so, everything he has to say in the rest of this passage, from verse 8 to verse 16, is then an explanation of the ministries the Spirit will have following his coming because of the Lord's departure. And those ministries are so, are such an advantage to us. that, again, we can't even begin. I I don't have time to get into it, but it's just really fantastic. Do you know that the Spirit really did not have a worldwide ministry in the Old Testament days? Have you ever thought about that? Now, He has been involved in 11 ministries, but um, about 8 of those have been after the Lord's departure and the, the Spirit's coming on the day of Pentecost. I was really baffled, and I told Terry, I said, this is difficult, but I was reading many, many books I have on the Holy Spirit, you know, reading chapters that are on the Holy Spirit. I did read Dr. Lehman Strauss' whole book on the Holy Spirit, and uh, because I heard one man say that the Spirit of God did not have a ministry really in the Old Testament days universally, like with Gentiles. Now, he had a ministry of restraining evil which he still carries on today he had a ministry where he always held back evil um, and held back the antichrist you know satan i don't know if you've ever realized but satan in every generation has a man ready and prepared to become the antichrist and, and, and the Spirit has been holding back whoever that one is. But when the Holy Spirit removes his restraining of evil ministry, when he's removed with the church, that man that, the, that, the, that Satan has prepared will then be able to do his thing. Um, so he's been involved, and of course he was involved with God the Father and God the Holy Son in the creation ministry. You know, he's he so he has had ministries, but he and he had a big ministry with the nation of Israel, of course. But the only time you really read of the spirit in the Old Testament is with Israel. Now, he did not indwell people, did he? He would come down and he would speak through prophets. They they would be able to say the spirit moved upon me and you know thus saith the Lord. But he didn't stay in the prophets. He'd come down and he'd even sometimes use unsaved people to do certain works, like Balaam and King Saul, speak through them and do things. But he never ha- and he had a ministry, you know, trying to work through Israel. But he he never had a universal ministry. Do you know how God worked with? the world from the time of adam to the time of christ how the how the lord worked with the, the world as far as the spirit is concerned if you do tell me because there's no record of it the only thing we really have is that god said the time of the, before he said the sent the flood my spirit will all, not always strive with men you see in the old testament days he began by giving Adam and Eve the truth, right? They had the truth, and those they shared it with their children, but there was just a narrow line of those that descended from Seth that stuck to that truth and that maintained the truth about the real God in their minds and kept kept his promises, of the promise of the coming Savior. When you get to the time of Noah, how many righteous people were on the whole face of the earth? Just Noah and his family eight. But so God gave a second chance, and Noah and his sons all knew about the true God, but it wasn't long before the world again had left God and they were devising their own religions, right? Their own ways. And again there was just that righteous and you know by when he called Abraham, Abraham was a Gentile originally. (laughs) He became the father of the Jews, but Abraham was like you know, the Lord is looking over the whole earth and finds one man. Who will believe him and step out in faith? And uh, You know, it's amazing. I was thinking, how many Gentiles were saved in the Old Testament days? Not very many. But anybody who was saved, was saved by God the Holy Spirit. No man can be saved apart from the Spirit. But you see, the difference is, in the Old Testament days, the Spirit worked on individuals. It tells us in Romans that God worked through men's consciences. Originally, you know, it was a human conscience that was to restrain men. Um, That didn't work too good because they seared their consciences. But if a man or a woman or a young person was listening to their God-given conscience and then they saw God revealed in the nature around them because he has revealed himself in nature, right? Right? I remember as a child, I didn't know God, but I'd look up at the stars and say, there must be a God. If a person was living up to that light, put in them, God the Holy Spirit would then draw them to himself, to, to well, to God and to Christ. They didn't know Christ then, but anyway, the Holy Spirit did work and save individuals, but the difference since the Lord's departure after he uh, procured salvation for us. It's a finished work. His departure is one of a victory over death. His resurrection is a you know over death. Since that time, because he has procured salvation, he sent the Holy Spirit, and now the Holy Spirit has a new ministry for the whole world, not just through one nation, Israel, but for the whole world. And how does he reach out to the whole world? through his body, the church. So there's a big difference. I got to think. I'm so glad I was not born a Gentile in Old Testament days because I could think of very few Gentiles in the Scripture. I know King Nebuchadnezzar got saved. Who can think of some more? A few here and there Gentiles. Ruth, you know, but Rahab, but very few, very few. That's why he says the road is narrow. You say, oh, that doesn't seem fair. It's fair. Will not the God of all of this world do that which is fair. Men knew the truth, but they they denied it. And they replaced the true God for the God of their own imagination. So what did he do? He gave them over to their own depravity. He gave them over to a reprobate mind. That's why so many nations are so godless today. It was their own choosing. They originally knew the truth. You go in any culture, do you know what they all have? They all have the story of Noah and the ark. They knew. But they pushed it aside and they went their own way. So he's given them over. All right, boy, did I go off course with my lesson, and I know I've kept you over, but woohoo! let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for sending us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the victory won by your Son, the Lord Jesus on the cross, and, and for his resurrection and for his ascension to your right hand and his asking you for the coming of the Spirit, that the Comforter might come. Thank you that we know his indwelling and that we can sense his ministry in our presence, and that we can know what it is to have times that, that we realize his moving in conviction and his enlightening our hearts that we might understand the truths that you have given to us in your word. Thank you that we live in the time that we live in. I've never appreciated as much as I have this past week. Thank you, Lord, that we have been born in the church age and and that now the Holy Spirit works to the whole world and he indwells us. May we really get a hold of the fact that he is in us and that we can speak boldly through him and fear no one. Take away from us, Lord, the fear of man and make us in these end times, make us truly bold, bold, courageous, salt and light witnesses for you. And we do pray, Jesus, in your name.